Welcome back to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. In this episode, we'll be wrapping up a quick three-part series titled World War III, When, Where, and Why. In this teaching, Pastor Harris will focus on what he learned according to Scripture will need to happen in order to initiate World War III. He will also break down the factors that should be considered to deduce the location this war or invasion will take place. He'll also review some specifics around the timing of these happenings. It's a fairly short teaching, but I'm not sure I can say it's a sweet one. In fact, this is some pretty heavy stuff, but a very interesting approach to understanding how this war could play out in our modern world. Now, by modern world, I should even clarify modern geography and civilizations. All of these aspects become factors in understanding how all this may very well play out someday. So with that, let's wrap up this series that was first taught back in the 1940s by Raymond Harris, shared over the course of my dad's ministry, and now being shared out to you all. I hope this has been as enlightening and thought-provoking to you all as it has been to me. This series has been titled World War III, When, Where, and Why. And today's final series message is titled Initiation and Location. Now, Ezekiel has no explanation of the cause for this massive Russian Shiite invasion or the willingness of the world community to turn their heads. However, a few clues can be found, not in what Ezekiel includes, but in what Ezekiel excludes. For example, Syria, the most aggressively anti-Israeli nation in the Middle East, is never mentioned in the text. As I said earlier, could this be related to the fact that this nation no longer exists at the time? Well, I can tell you this, the prophets of Israel say yes. They describe just such an event. In Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1, and in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 14, the prophet declares, Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. And behold, at evening tide trouble, and before morning he is not. This is the portion of them that spoil us, and the lot of them that rob us. In Jeremiah chapter 40, verses 24 through 25, the prophet declared, Damascus is waxed feeble, and turns herself to flee, and fear had seized on her as a woman in travail. How is the city of praise not left, the city of my joy? You see, beloved, here's, here's what's important about this. Damascus is reported by some to be the oldest, now get this, continuously inhabited city in the world. But now suddenly in the prophet Isaiah and in the prophet Jeremiah, we find God saying that it is going to be suddenly demolished, uninhabitable. Now, beloved, this cannot be a result of something that happened in the past because Damascus has never been taken away from being a city. Not like Babylon had. Now, Isaiah gives us a hint of what will occur when he speaks of the Syrians attempting to spoil and rob Israel. Did you get that? He said, this is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. I believe they will attempt to retake the Golan Heights, the land that God has promised to Israel. You see, it does not belong to the Syrians. The Golan Heights, beloved, belongs to the tribal inheritance of Manasseh, but is now claimed by Syria. 
And when the Syrians attack the Golan, I can promise you this disaster will strike. Isaiah calls what occurs the burden of Damascus. Now, what is the burden of Damascus? The burden of Damascus, beloved, is their irrational hatred of the Zionist state, as they call it. And this hatred will one day lead them to utter devastation and destruction. Now, you know, Damascus has always been a significant city from a biblical perspective. This city is mentioned 60 times in 55 verses in the Old and New Testament. Its first mission, it mentioned, excuse me, is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 15. But the primary references are found in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. When interpreting prophecy, it's important to realize that there is a principle that applies to all prophetic writings that I call the principle of reoccurrence. Now, often in prophetic writings, there is an immediate, if partial, fulfillment of a prophecy that tends to foreshadow a future, more complete fulfillment of that very prophecy. In other words, in some prophecies... The events being described were being fulfilled at the very time when the prophecy was uttered, and at a later time, a greater, broader fulfillment is promised. The book of Job describes this principle of reoccurrence when it declares, For God speaks once, yea, twice, yet man perceives it not. See, God will usually speak twice. He will speak to an immediate occurrence, and then a future reoccurrence. Now, the book of Daniel offers some of the clearest examples of this principle of reoccurrence. Daniel could speak of things, world events that were occurring all around him, but we can now see the very same events unfolding all around us today. It seems to me, beloved, that God originated the principle of reoccurrence so that his true prophetic voices could be validated by having their prophecies come to pass in their own lifetime. Credence is given to this by a passage of Scripture found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. It states, and I quote, And if you should say in your heart, How shall we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the things does not happen nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet had spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. You see, what it's saying here, is that God will always validate, at least in part, the prophecy delivered by one of his servants. If the prophecy does not happen, that man is a false prophet. You shouldn't listen to him. You shouldn't be afraid of what he has to say. Or stand in awe is a, is a better way of saying it. Now, the principle of reoccurrence is very relevant in Isaiah 17. Because some of the commentaries that I have read indicate that Isaiah 17 was fulfilled in 2 Kings 16.9. And there, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, and I quote, went up against Damascus, end of quote. And what did he do there? Tiglath-Pileser promptly destroyed the city. But beloved, he, 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 he didn't leave the city unoccupied. He, he didn't leave it desolate. So the events of 2 Kings 16 cannot be the total fulfillment of this prophecy because Damascus did not cease to exist, nor has it ever. So its utter destruction is yet to occur. It's coming in the future, a broader fulfillment of Isaiah 17. So here's what I believe. I believe that in the near future, the state of Syria, along with the states of Egypt and Jordan, neither of which are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, 
will attack the state of Israel for a fourth time. Now, I think what's going to give rise to this attack is going to be the recent successes of Hezbollah. And I think it's going to encourage and embolden them. And, beloved, believe me when I tell you this is going to be a colossal mistake. The outcome to this war will resemble that of the Six-Day War. As we have seen, only one of the Arab-Israeli wars, the Sinai Battle of 1956, was not launched by the Arabs. You see, in 1956, with pressure from the French in Great Britain, Israel was the one who attacked Egypt and the Sinai and routed them. But on three occasions, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt have directed attacks against Israel. In 1948, in the War of Independence, in 1967, in the so-called Six-Day War, and in 1973, in the Yom Kippur War. Now, it's important to remember the words of the prophet Amos regarding Syria, that is, Damascus. He stated, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away punishment thereof. In other words, Damascus is going to attack Israel for a fourth time. And as a matter of fact, they're going to be joined by Jordan and Egypt. And for a fourth time, they're going to come up against this nation, and the result is, as I've said, going to be a disaster. In fact, it appears that Syria will be utterly destroyed, and Israel will probably be provoked to destroy Damascus by either the state-sponsored terrorists headquartered in Damascus, or by some aggressive action on the part of the Syrian military. Syria, of course, has been engaged in state terrorism, beloved, ever since 1986, when they attempted to plant a bomb on an El Al commercial flight. And since that time, the Syrians have allowed their territory to be used as a sanctuary for such groups as the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. As a matter of fact, for several years, Iran has supplied Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon with arms, especially Katusha rockets, through Syria. In fact, in the March 1st, 2006 edition of the Jerusalem Post, we're told that 10 radical Palestinian factions are now headquartered in Damascus. Now, beloved, back in February 2001, I read something that caused me to believe that Isaiah 17 was going to be fulfilled before my very eyes. You see, for several years I have subscribed to the Debka Intelligence Report, which gives inside information on the Middle East to interested readers. On February 16th of 2001, Debka reported that a United States-British air raid had been launched against an Iraqi command control center north of Baghdad involving 42 aircraft based in Turkey. Now, what made this raid interesting is the fact that the Israeli Air Force was also secretly involved. Some 35 GSOW missiles were fired by the United States at the command and control center of the Iraqis, but a software glitch developed and it caused all of these missiles to miss their part. Well, the Iraqis believed that they had been able to jam the electronics of the missiles with jamming devices purchased from China. So an emboldened Saddam Hussein, now unafraid of U.S.-British air power, chose to respond. Several days later, satellite images alerted the Allied military commanders that six Iraqi divisions had begun to move westward toward the border with southern Syria and northern Jordan with the possible intention of invading northern, northern Israel. The Iraqis were fully equipped with both missiles and missile launchers, 
and would be ready to strike Israel by February 22, 2001. Well, the Israeli military immediately went on alert, total and complete alert, the deepest alert that the Israeli army can be given. Now, to enable the Iraqis to assemble without being decimated by the United States and British air power, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad gave the Iraqi forces permission to move into Syrian territory if they were attacked by the United States and Great Britain. Syria would claim that they were their soldiers on maneuver attacked by the Western warmongers. At the same time, Hezbollah was instructed to unleash their rockets against the cities of northern Israel, and Yasser Arafat was instructed to instruct his terrorists inside the occupied territories to launch coordinated attacks against Israel on February 22, 2001. Well, the Israeli military reluctantly prepared to launch a massive retaliation. But first, they sent word to Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister, of their exact plan. Well, Tony Blair is a very intelligent man, and he quickly relayed the message to Saddam Hussein. It was a terrifying dispatch, beloved. Saddam and Bashar al-Assad were both warned that within two days, Israel would launch a devastating preemptive strike called the Jericho Sanction against Syria and Iraq. The Israelis indicated that they would drop neutron bombs on the six Iraqi divisions, even if these divisions were bivouacked inside Syria. But these neutron devices would only be the beginning. They would also drop nuclear bombs on both Damascus and Baghdad, the attack would be launched at 7.30 p.m. Israeli time. Now, once again, Saddam Hussein realized that this was no bluff, and hastily he withdrew his six divisions. The Syrians and the Palestinians both stood down. Now, this story can be verified at WorldNet Daily uh, on the Internet for February 22, 2001. Well, as I kept myself informed of these breaking events... I turned again and again again to Isaiah 17. See, this prophecy was not fulfilled in 2001, but I believe it will be fulfilled very soon. And when it is fulfilled, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt will virtually cease to exist, at least as military entities. And for a time, Israel will experience a period of unprecedented peace. But Russia and Iran will plot to even the score with Israel for having demolished their old allies. They will strike suddenly and without warning, but the one who will even the score will not be Magog. The one who evens the score will be Israel's God. Russia and the new caliphate will be utterly and completely demolished. The odd thing is this. Ezekiel says these nations will not come to the hills of Israel by their own volitions, even though they think they will. God, Ezekiel says, will put a hook in their jaws and drag them to the hills of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee to die. One thing is certain. This war has not yet occurred. Israel has never been invaded by the Russians, not in all of its history. In addition, the prophet indicates that this invasion will not occur until the latter years, according to Ezekiel 38.8. That means not until after the nation of Israel is gathered into the land promised by God to the seed of Abraham in Genesis 15. Now this regathering of the dispersed nation is described in detail in Ezekiel 37 in the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones. That prophecy is immediately followed by the prophecy of the invasion of the land of Magog. 
Ezekiel 38, 8 through 12 declares this. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many peoples against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste, but is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou shalt descend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy hordes, and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass, that at the same times things shall come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought, and thou shalt say, I will go into the land of unwalled villages. I will go to those who are at rest, who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates to take a spoil and to take a prey, and to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, who have gotten cattle and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. Now, beloved, naturally, none of these things can occur until Israel is first dwelling safely in the land of promise. Now, this word safely, safely, is crucial, absolutely crucial to a proper understanding of this chapter. This adverb translates the Hebrew verb betach, B-A-T-A-C-H, which can also be translated as a false sense of confidence, not necessarily a state of physical security. See, Ezekiel speaks of unwalled villages, something that the prophet had not seen very often in his lifetime. Zechariah picks up on the same thing. Zechariah 2, 4 and 5 says this, that God said unto him, Speak to the young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle in it. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto it a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of it. You see, beloved, in the days of Ezekiel, villages would only be unwalled if they were safe and divinely protected. And in the millennial reign of Christ, described by the prophet Zechariah, Jerusalem will finally be safe. Now, one thing must be clarified at this point. The war described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 will not be the battle of Armageddon, but it will occur previous to the rapture of the church. Now, here are some of the differences between the two battles. According to Daniel 11 and Revelation 16, one of the two armies involved in the battle of Armageddon will be led by the Antichrist. The battle described by Ezekiel will be led by a person called Gog. This person, Gog, is not the Antichrist. Now, perhaps the most important distinction between these two wars, as we have previously shown, is the fact that Israel is said to be dwelling safely in their land. Armageddon, on the other hand, follows the time known as the Great Tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. For the 42 months prior to the Battle of Armageddon, Israel will be experiencing hell on earth, beloved. Every nation in the world will turn its back on Israel, and its torment only ceases when Christ unexpectedly returns to the Mount of Olives. He will rescue Israel from all of these hostile nations. Consider these following scriptures. Zechariah 14, 2 and 4. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to do battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravaged, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people around about, and they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem, and then that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, 
all that burden themselves with it. It shall be cut in pieces through all the nations of the earth be gathered together against it. Revelation sixteen fourteen, For they are the spirits of demons working miracles. They go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to do battle on the great day of God Almighty. So do you see, beloved? The battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 does not involve the whole world or all the world, just the select nations, mainly Russia, the Shiite Muslims, and the Middle East. Now, as I interpret the Word of God, it appears to me that the attack of Magog upon Israel will occur several years prior to the rapture of the church, perhaps as many as 12 years. The point is, there will be two wars prior to the rapture of the church. The first war will be the fourth all-out Arab-Israeli war involving Syria, Egypt, and Jordan, in which the Arab nations will be crushed. The victory in this fourth war will bring Israel a brief time of safety and security. Then shortly thereafter, Russia and her Shiite allies will launch their surprise attack in retaliation for the fourth Muslim humiliation at the hands of Israel. Now, beloved, the fascinating thing about the Russian attack is that it contains some very good news for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It will look to the world as if Israel is fighting this war. You see, that's how it will appear. And as I've said, it's going to be Israel all alone. But according to the word of God, it will not be. You see, the fire from Israel's weapons will be supernatural in origin, as Ezekiel 39.8 declares. In addition, it will, there will be a great earthquake in Israel that will shake the entire planet. God's word says this, Surely in that day there will be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the seas and the fowls of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places will fall. Every wall will fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him in all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I will enter into judgment against him with pestilence and with blood. And I shall reign upon him and upon his hordes and upon his many peoples that are with him and overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord. Beloved, I believe that this great shaking is not a natural earthquake. Even though Israel sits astride the planet's greatest fault line, the Great Rift Valley. And this shaking will come from nuclear weapons that will rain down upon the cities of the Russian-Iranian alliance, producing what appears to be hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Radiation sickness will appear to be some kind of pestilence. Mountains will actually disappear as the bombs explode. These events will shake the entire earth. The Muslim leaders in particular will see that by buying into radical Islam and that by following the mullahs of Iran, they have brought destruction on themselves. And they will begin to fight against one another and against the soldiers of Magog. They will suddenly realize that they have been worshiping an ancient moon deity rather than the one true God. And this realization will sanctify the name of God because the Muslims have been saying that this God Allah is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, desecrating God's name. You see, God is I am. He is not the moon God of the Muslims. All the while, God will supernaturally protect the state of Israel from the nuclear holocaust. 
that will come primarily upon the Muslim world and perhaps upon Russia and its other allies. This then, my friends, is World War III. We have discovered when, just prior to the rapture of the church. We have discovered where, in the land of Abraham's inheritance, Israel. And we have discovered why. It is a satanic plot to eliminate the state of Israel and set back the prophetic clock. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Ariel Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at arielministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Ariel Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Ariel Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit arielministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit arielministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future.